This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional help. If you or someone you know is facing difficulties, I advise you consult a psychologist. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Psych for Life with Dr. Amanda Ferguson. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Ferguson. Today's episode is about blokes' psychology, boys' and men's mental health with psychologist Carl Nelms. Carl's a registered psychologist and the founder of Blokes Psychology. Carl, you're extremely passionate about assisting men to overcome the stigma of reaching out for support. And it's your vision that by creating the service, You're targeting males so that more men can improve their psychological health and well-being, stop suffering in silence and receive the support they desperately need, and that they and their families can start living a more fulfilling and meaningful life, such a valuable service. And you also enjoy working with and supporting new parents, having recently become a first-time father yourself. How exciting. Welcome to the podcast, Carl. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you. Very excited to be here. Lovely. And I believe your practice treats five-year-olds and older. What are some of the themes that boys and teens are struggling with these days? Where does one begin, Amanda? When I think about especially the uh, the younger guys who come in, it can be anything from bullying and parental separation to to the, uh, the topic of screen time, which is huge these days, and gaming addiction and School refusal, especially down in Melbourne in the last three years or, uh, well, 2020 to 2023 with COVID and, and homeschooling. So a lot of kids have struggled to really integrate back uh, into the school environment. And I suppose everything else you could probably imagine from the older older guys uh, or the older kids in regards to substance use and social uh, problems with their friends. And I suppose when you get a so talking about about the adolescence, it's a lot more about, well, what does it mean to be a man, that, that age-old question, and that's a fascinating space in itself. So working with those teens to try and sort of explore and uh, extract what that means for them and where their place is in the world. Oh, look, it must be such a fascinating, moving time that we live in with that changing gender identification and, yes, men's identity. Um, in fact, the reason I reached out to you is because I saw an article in the Sydney Morning Herald where you were interviewed about this. And and shockingly, that seven of nine suicides a day in Australia are of men. Yes, yes. And that's a stat uh, that was recently updated, I think, a year or two ago by the ABS. It was six out of eight, now it's seven out of nine. Yeah. And it's a stat, to my knowledge, that is replicated in a pretty similar fashion around the Western world. Why do you think that is? Why do more men suicide? Oh, I think we could speak for an hour about that, Amanda. <laughs> but uh, to my knowledge, and look, I'm not no by no means a subject matter expert in men's suicide in particular, because there's people who spend whole careers um, investigating that. But what we do know is that most men who suicide are facing um, at least one or more of the following, which is mental health concerns, relationship breakdown, financial issues, legal and court issues and physical health problems. And if you can imagine how hard addressing one of those is, let alone three or four, then you you can almost begin to grasp the idea that maybe suicide presents itself as an option. Yeah, so for your work to be reaching men before and way before they get to that point is so important. And what led you to focus wholly on men 
in your practice? Honestly, it was very organic. I always knew that I wanted to do my own thing once I got my stripes as a psychologist, but I had no idea what. Um, but when I really reflect on it from an early age, I've always been surrounded by either family members, male family members, or uh, friends as I hit my adolescence and viewing their dads, just a lot of men that just weren't doing so well. Yeah. And I played soccer for 17 years, uh, predominantly with all men. So I experienced a lot of different cultures and locker room chats and things like that. And it just became really evident personally that men weren't doing so well. A lot of things we didn't talk about. And then beginning to work as a provisional psychologist, being one of the few men in that uh, service, yes. most of my clients were men. And it was literally just a conversation I had with a client one day, very naive. And I said, mate, you know, it sounds like you probably should have reached out for support 10, 15 years ago. And this was a chap in his, I think, 50s or 60s. And without hesitation, he just said back to me, he said, you know, it was a very ochre, ochre Aussie guy. He said, mate, where would I have gone? Yeah. And I said, well, there's plenty of psychology clinics and public health services. And he goes, yeah, but mate, they're all flower power this, they're cognitive behavioural that. He goes, where's a bloke to go? Yeah. And it was just, you know, long so short a conversation I had that night with my external supervisor in her rooms and I, she was allowing me to explore and vents and I sort of said in passing, it's almost like there needs to be a bloke psychology clinic and she just said, why don't you do it? Yeah, yeah, because I'm sure the, the bulk of psychologists are female and, yeah, for a male to feel safe with another male makes sense. It does. It does. And it's an interesting point you raised because last year we were lucky enough to bring on our first female clinician. Uh, yeah. She was with us for just under a year, but sadly she had to go back to Ireland for some personal issues. Uh, but she was amazing. And we were a bit unsure about how how a brand or how how uh, the inquiries would go, mm. sort of wanting to see a female. But, and recent research has backed this up, is that men don't actually care about the gender of their therapists. Oh, um, which is, was fascinating for me yeah. um, because I thought, oh, well, that's a lot of guys do come to us um, saying, no, I just want to see a bloke. Yeah. But there's another 50% who go, no, 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 no. I just want to go somewhere who have men in mind and that's that's their special interest and are passionate about men and men's yeah. health and really understand what it means to be a man in today's age. Yeah, and to your point that men do want to speak differently, they want practical advice, not the, the sort of touchy-feely sort of stuff sort of I'm um, hearing you um, advice, but some practical um, problem solving, I guess, to the point about suicide, that that seems to be solving a problem by the time you can't solve it. Yes. No, and I think it, it's it's a fascinating discussion. We have this with our sort of interns and our early career psychs a lot of the time about what, what we do differently. Yeah. And I think initially we call it sort of the hook. You do need to give them some more practical strategies in order to hook them in before giving them perhaps what they need, which might be some emotional insights or, as as you said, some more sort of longer-term therapy about whatever they've experienced or what's going on for them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess if they relate to it up front, men like to relate to the, the practical problem-solving side of things and that makes, I guess, makes them feel comfortable and then easing into the more emotional side of things. Well, that's it. Plays into the male brain, doesn't it? Solution-focused. And, and I think we forget this increasingly that there is a male brain, there is a female brain, that we are still different, even though I think the research shows we're overwhelmingly more similar as different, you know, different gender, but there is still a gender difference. And people increasingly seem to forget that and and I think at, at their own peril. Definitely. And, and it reminds me, I don't know if you've ever seen that video, Amanda, the nail in the head couples video. Have you seen that on YouTube? 
No, I've heard of it, but I haven't yet. Okay, if anyone's listening, just YouTube the nail in the head video. Uh, I won't spoil it, but it's fascinating. Just it's that typical, I suppose, couple scenario where the female just wants validation and to express and for the male to hold space. And the male sort of just go, yeah, but if you just did this, <laughs> I won't give it away though. And, you know, men are so quick to want to solve problems and yet they don't seek their own solutions, their own therapy, their own support. And yet they're so quick to want to provide it to others. Why is that? I personally believe, um, based off the experience we've had in the last five or six years, is that, and it sort of links into what makes us different and what men need in therapy, and the literature has been backing this up, that men don't actually know what therapy involves. Ah. And we know that, as you highlighted, men are less likely to reach out for support, but also those who do reach out for support have a higher dropout rate. So what that means is that they're more likely to cease that support or therapy before they've met their treatment outcomes, before they've improved, and that's generally defined in the dropping out within the first one to three sessions. Oh, no. Why so is re- Well, really, what I, I think if you take those the suicide statistic you mentioned earlier, the dropout statistic, and the lower help-seeking, I think what that says is men are struggling, uh, less men reach out for support, and those who do, the support services and therapy are failing them. And they're failing uh, them because they're not engaging them the way you are? I think so. I think so. Uh, and I often go back to sort of how we were trained in our tertiary training. It was almost, not always, but it was almost a one-size-fits-all. There was an assumption that the client in front of you were very client-focused and Rogerian and uh, the client in front of you wants to be there. Mm. Or, or and or the client in front of you actually understands what this process of therapy involves. Whereas I would say 20 to 30% of the clients we see who walk in our doors may have some accurate idea. The others have no idea. Their idea is way off. And so that was that's what's been fascinating in this journey because once we launched, emerging literature started to emerge uh, about what works with many therapy. And the two biggest things were that what clinicians were failing to do uh, in the initial papers that were qualitative papers were orientating men to what therapy involves and yeah. being transparent about the process as opposed to just launching in and going, so Amanda, tell me, what, what brings you here? What are you struggling with? Mm. So is that part of your intake that you educate people about what's going to be involved? Hugely, hugely. So that first session, all of our clinicians, you know, I run an in-house training and workshop about uh, client retention and engagement, but about engaging men specifically, because that is our point of difference. We're not just a clinic that have a team that are passionate about men's health. That is us. But also what we do in session, I would argue, probably doesn't differ to everybody, but we are very explicit in making yeah. sure that we do those things that we've observed matter and the literature backs that up. Wow. Because I read that 70% of men avoid seeking support altogether. Yes, and that's why it's so important those that come in our doors or come to therapy that we actually provide them with good service because word of mouth, they're going to tell their mates and hopefully that tide will shift. Yeah, absolutely. And back to your point about masculinity. And in the media, there's recently been this crisis of of masculinity and identity and the, the role of men. I guess, you know, the world is changing so rapidly and there's much more sort of social equality, but um, it must leave men at a loss as to what does a man look like these days. 
It's very timely you mentioned this. I saw the Barbie movie last night. So oh. all these themes have been flying through my head. Um, very good film for, for anybody to see. Have you seen it, Amanda? No, not yet. It's, I think you'd enjoy it, given uh, given the topic we're talking about today. But you hit the nail on the head. I think men, young men in particular, and adolescents, they are lost. Yeah. Because we're exposed with, the inf- uh, with uh, social media and the internet. We're exposed to so much information and different narratives these days and once we find one we might subscribe to, the algorithm just keeps putting that in, in front of us. So I think a lot of men perceive, uh, and I have to be careful how I word this so I have not misrepresented here, but I think a lot of men and young men perceive the sort of the Me Too movement, for example, or the gender diverse, sexual diversity movement, which are great because we're coming a long way to ensuring that we have equality and acceptance for these different groups. But I think a lot of men are perceiving that as anti-man. Yes. And anti-man. And on the fringes of the extremes of some of these groups, there are people who are not helping with that. And a lot of men are feeling left out because not to say it was healthier, but 30, 40 years ago, to be a man and a young man, it was a lot simpler. Yes. You got a job, you provided, this is what you did. You had a script. Mm. And a lot of men now are perceiving that script has been torn up. So they're becoming very lost. And the risk of that is then they can subscribe to some really harmful narratives on the other end of the spectrum, which yeah. I don't need to label, but I think we all know what they are, which are also equally as unhelpful and destructive. Mm. So even more reason why men need to mentor men at this, this point and help them redefine what being a man really is. Exactly, exactly. And one thing I think we have a severe lack of is mentors and local sort of men championing this and mm. that local men can look up to as opposed to subscribing to some YouTuber who you'll never meet and, yeah. you know, he's really only interested in his own agenda. Yeah. And rites of passage used to do this for men and we lost all of those during COVID lockdowns because there wasn't any sort of um, rite of passage of leaving primary school and even going on to campus at university and all these these rituals that help men find out who they really are and people, in, in fact, find out who they really are and and negotiate the rules of society and where they fit. Um, I think new and emerging rites of passage have to find a place here. Oh, definitely. And I think there are some great initiatives going on. I know a lot about the local high schools we liaise with do some really great uh, projects in that regard, you know, it's, uh, father and son camps and rites of passage when they enter VC and things like that. Um, but we need to see a lot more of it because too many boys are being left behind, just confused and lost. And unfortunately, then they're at risk of being quite toxic or harmful members of society to others and themselves. Yeah. So many risks, as you say, with the big tech companies as well with pornography and everything infiltrating into the lives of vulnerable boys. And then men from the age of 50, I believe there's a great trend where they tend to isolate. And that's another major existential crisis that you discussed in that interview in the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, I guess a lot of your work must be targeted to that age group as well. Well, as I'm sure you would know, Amanda, um, consulting yourself, a lot of clients come to us, you know, both genders about around life transition stages, but that 50 plus sort of entering semi-retirement, kids potentially beginning to need you less or looking to move out, put on top of all of that, maybe some ailing health, uh, maybe you can't do as much as you used to, maybe you've realised you've neglected the social connections and friendships, 
life begins to look pretty bleak if you find yourself in that position because there's no meaning, there's no purpose, and your your perception of your future, your next 20, 30 years, can be pretty dull, pretty dull, unfortunately. So, mm-hmm. and, and you get a guy like in that position, that and and again, it comes back to what is therapy. That's long term work. And that's what we have to orientate some of these guys around. You know, they come in, oh, I just want some strategies to be able to manage my mood, mate. And you sort of go, okay, yep. And you'll massage that and sort of maybe get the buy-in. But once you get the buy-in, it's trying to highlight to them and show them the mirror that, mate, these are systemic things in your life going on. There's no best therapist in the world that can wave the magic wand and, you know, fix all of this. Yeah. And often, as you say, there's been a breakdown of marriage relationship at that point. Um, there's a drop in testosterone, so their identity is really in crisis and the world they grew up in has changed forever. And, yeah, it's, it, it is a major existential crisis to take men through that oh, I think it it takes it, it takes a lot for a guy to go through that and to persist when, I don't know, I, I think it's almost like men are not as sort of built for therapy. So you're right, targeting a different approach that does really engage them. And there's got to be, as you say, a hook. And often it, it it's about the relationship loss and repeating relationship losses where they have no insight. Exactly. And, and I think you touched on something there too, that I feel that there is a big parallel in that age group between what we're talking about with the younger age group. What does it mean to be a man? Yeah. A 50-year-old dealing with those life changes at the same time, he's reading articles online and YouTube, the Sun, the Sydney Herald, about you know what is okay and isn't okay to be a man now. And he's going, hang on, 20, 30 years ago, this is what it meant to be a man. And now his whole script has completely changed as well, especially if he's got a teenage boy. Mm. You've got 40, 50-year-old men going, okay, that script doesn't exist anymore. My son doesn't know how to be a man, but also how do I role model that if I'm not sure either? So it's... As you can see, there's so many layers to this, which is, that's why it makes it so enjoyable um, and exciting to work with these guys once they you do get their buy-in and you can start to see some of those insights, as you put it, really start to develop and they can implement them. Yeah, and it's so important to empower men at all these different ages since the Me Too movement, which made men understandably so fearful about what they can and can't do to women in terms of touch and expressions and guidance is so important that we all find the script together. Yeah, no, and that and that's, I think the female uh, voice in this is missing as well to a large degree. And that's not that's not their fault at all. Mm. But uh, I think we need their buying too to say, well, what does it mean to be a man in our sort of uh, inclusive society, our connected society? What role do we want them to play? Yeah. And I mean, this is a whole other tangent, but, you know, as I say this, it, it occurs to me that we often say, and you'll have the PM or different people get up and say, we need, you know, men to play an equal role in the home, which I don't deny that we should. But the society we live in in Australia and many countries around the world don't have the structures to enable them to do that. No. And we, especially in Australia, like I've got a good mate in Germany, as you know, Amanda just got back from uh, Europe a few weeks ago, and he's taken a year off because the government pays 80% of his salary yes. to take a year off. I've got yeah. family in Sweden that we see regularly, and my cousin's husband took a year and a half off yeah. to raise their young kid, and that's that's virtually unheard of here. And I've had these discussions with people in Australia, and some people said, ah, oh, but Aussie men wouldn't want to do that. 
and I actually think bullshit. I, I I say it's 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 a travesty that we can't at least start taking some steps towards that to give men the platform to do the things we're asking them to do or make it a bit easier. I don't know any young fathers who wouldn't want to spend more time with their kids, but they just can't. No. It's been maternal leave. It's only recently paternal leave is is offered by some companies. And, yeah, there's still a major perception that the female will raise the the child in a heterosexual relationship um, and frowned upon that a male would would take time off work. Well, and also I've had this discussion with some clients that, and even mates as we've all sort of entered fatherhood in the last few years that what does it say about what we how we value fathers? Yeah. In society, if we if we say, you know, my wife works in the public sector, I think she gets 12 weeks plus 12 months they have to hold her job. But for the blokes in that workplace, I think it's two weeks. Oh, no. Weeks. And even if you look at Centrelink, I can't remember what that is, but it's, I think it's 12 weeks for women and maybe two weeks for men. I mean, what does that say about how we value yeah. the role of the father? It, it's really contradictory to a lot of other narratives that we should be pumping up. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, you're right, a big expression and message sent to men that your role is just simply to be um, transactional, perfunctory, provide, not nurture, you know, forget your feelings, forget your soft side, your emotional intelligence, and just be a mechanically robotic provider and worker. Yes. But at the same time, you should be involved. You should be emotionally aware, spend lots of time with your kids, but we won't give you any extra time or benefits to do so. No, to, <laughs> to develop that side of yourself as a parent. Mm. Yeah. So this must have changed your perception, becoming a first-time parent yourself. Yes, it did. My little man is nearly two in a week or so. So it's, uh, yeah, it's been fascinating. I think every every parent would say, you don't know what it's like to have done it. Yes. And even though I'd counseled a lot of dads and parents in the past, yeah, it really has shifted my focus. Um, I suppose I've been lucky in the sense that I'm a business owner, so I can shift my schedule a little bit more. Yeah. Um, but I really do feel for those those men or fathers in professions where they simply can't. They just have to work the 40, 50 hours on the front line doing whatever they're doing, whether they're a trade or in the finance industry. They don't have a flexible schedule. And I, I don't know if I could do that myself. It, it just, yeah, it would be very, very difficult, I think, to juggle all of those balls. Um, and then, I, you know, I think of clients I've had who we all know those people in our lives, they work 70, 80-hour weeks and they're family men and you get something's broken. Definitely. broken. Yeah, and by the time it comes back to haunt them, it's too late. You know, the kids are too old and have suffered the loss of a relationship with their father. And all the ensuing problems are there. And, yeah, men have done what they thought was the right thing. Well, that's what the script was. You know, my father was a classic example of that in his generation, that you work hard to provide and that's how you show love. But really, you know, as psychologists, we know that's that's far from the truth. Kids have emotional needs. They can care what postcode you live in or how big the house is. It's if you're there. That's right. And for men who sort of must fear, and I'm sure there's, some men who do fear coming out from behind that script, that old-fashioned script, you know, how do how do I be that emotionally available father? What are some of the resources apart from bloke psychology, which is a fabulous resource, what are some of the other resources that we can offer men in general to educate themselves about being emotionally available for their, their children? 
Oh, specific resources. I actually just started reading a book. I'll have to give you the specifics that I loved on my trip, and it's called uh, The Book Your Parents Should Have Read. Oh. <laughs> and so I've read a lot of parenting books, as I'm sure you, you have too, Amanda. But the reason I love this is the first two chapters get you to almost psychoanalyze your own childhood. Right. And your own parents' parenting styles and what they embedded within you. And then it, it forces you to look at how you're parenting. Wow. And connect the dots. And I thought, this is amazing because this is really what we would be doing in therapy in some yeah. way, shape, or form with new parents as well. So I would, that's the first one that rolls off uh, my tongue. Definitely. I haven't finished it yet, but so far, incredible. Yeah, I love that multi-generational perspective. I think that's it's hugely beneficial when people take the focus off just their parents but look at their parents' parents and then themselves as parents that, you know, what we're handed can be positive and negative, of course, and what we do with that is is the key thing as to what we pass on to our own kids. No, definitely. And that can be terribly confronting for some individuals, whether in therapy or just reading a book, but also, you know, there's opportunity within those confronting insights to either break the cycle or... Uh, pass on some great things potentially yeah. that will pass on to you. Yeah. And and your counselling service, um, as you said, does see women and often for them to help their boys and and their partners, I presume. And and does that really work as a flow on, for, you know, to be treating not the person who's got the problem but the person who's trying to support the person with the problem? It's a great question. I, I would say, I haven't looked at the stats for a while specifically on this, but I would say that most of the women we see, we don't really see long-term generally. Mm. Oftentimes it's a mum who couldn't get their teenager in. It's a wife who couldn't get their husband in. So they're hoping to have a few sessions to better understand how they can maybe support or connect or engage with that male in their life. But ultimately, their goal is to get that man in front of us. Right. Uh, so it's pretty rare, to my knowledge, that we have longer-term female clients. Um, trying to think of any examples off the top of my head. Probably can't, actually. I did have <laughs> – we've had a few, which is uh, interesting. Women come in literally going, I'm not sure if I'm with the right person. I need two sessions. I need you to give the male perspective, which is very different work <laughs> for us. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yes, most of it's short to medium term with the females with a view to get their male in their life in front of us. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that one of the reasons men don't seek counselling is because they don't understand what's involved. But this suffering in silence, is that the stoic part of the male brain or is it a stigmatised thing about therapy? I think both of those things, both yeah. of those things. I think that stoicism still very much exists. I mean, I'm, I'm 34 still in my generation. I think back to when I was a teenager, if you had said you'd seen a counsellor, ooh, that wouldn't go down too well. Whereas now, it's interesting in the clinic, we speak, <laughs> I'll have a client go, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I know my friend James, he comes here as well. We were saying, you know, I've got that psych and I go to this clinic. And it's just phenomenal to think that that is the open narrative they're having. Yeah. But sadly, for guys above 25, 30, I think that stoicism, whilst it's softened, it's still very much there. And whilst because we're so loud and proud in our clinic and our socials and one of our clinics, you know, is we've got a shop front and you can't miss us. Like we're very loud. We have some clients coming in hot and ready and they're coming with at the first sign of anything not going right. Unfortunately, we still probably have 60, 70% of the clients coming to us only when shit hits the fan. And it, it's usually an external catalyst that, you know, the wife's giving me the tap on the shoulder or a blown up at work or something like that. So, 
bang on, I think the stoicism, but also that problem solving sort of really objective mind going, it's going to take time. It's going to take money. I don't know what it involves. Mm. Nah, I'll be right. Yeah. And it's painful too, you know, to, it's one of those concepts that we don't produce the pain, but we do elicit the pain that's inside the person and they just find it painful and uncomfortable. And why would they do it? Well, and again, though, if you don't orientate a bloke to that, yes. And we've had a good say this like when I was still a one man band years ago, because mate, I nearly didn't come back. His last session was horrendous. He goes, I just cried in the car. And it sounds cliche, but you've got to feel to heal, right? And so yeah. be transparent about, hey, uh, hey, Amanda, you're going to feel worse after some sessions. But that that doesn't mean this is not working. That's not doesn't mean it's not heading in the right direction. Yeah, and it doesn't mean I'm creating the pain, <laughs> or the sessions creating the pain. It's it's bringing it out, and it's always yes. better out than in. Was already there. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that can be a sort of difficult concept for people to understand. Especially with that male black and white brain, right? It's again with some of the guys who have no idea or, or ill-informed idea about what therapy is, we might be talking to them about that for a, a portion of the session for the first three or four or five sessions. Yeah. Because they say, yeah, I get it. But then you, you go, hang on, mate, we spoke about this. Remember, this is my role. This is your role. This is what might happen. This is how sessions are going to flow. This is what we're going to focus on the next few sessions. It gives them some reassurance. Yeah. And isn't it rewarding when men do persist with the therapy and you see them transform, their lives transform, they become empowered and anything's possible. Well, now you speak with language. I mean, that that's why I still love the work we do, not only the client work, but the supervision, the group supervision with our team, because the wins are just so meaningful. So, okay. so meaningful. You know, I was, I was chatting just quickly to a, one of our team members last week and he was feeling stuck with a client. And then he saw the client 14 sessions in and boom, that's when the insight and the traction and the guy broke down. And that's why we do it. That's why yeah. we do it. Yeah. And I quite often find men come back, even if it's a couple of years later, and they realize, oh, I should have kept persisting with therapy because now I'm actually in a worse place and I can see that I was at a tipping point, I was at a turning point, but I didn't persist. And unfortunately, often men have to realise by not following through that they need to come back. Yeah. It's funny you say that. Actually, when I was on leave, I had four or five come back. I hadn't seen for three or four years. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, that's a whole other research topic in itself. Could be. It is, it is, and I guess that's human nature anyway. It's not just men that we often find out what works by not doing what works. Mm-hmm. And it, and it's and it, it's even harder this year. We found. Uh, I mean, COVID was similar for us in Melbourne, but just the cost of living, the interest rates down here, it's it's really made our clients and men in particular sort of have to analyze. Well, if something has to give, then they're going to sacrifice their therapy first and foremost. I know, and this cost of living crisis is causing a great toll on people's mental health at a time when mental health is in crisis. You know, the shadow pandemic, as the media has been calling the mental health crisis since the pandemic. Mm. I wish uh, more government funding would be brought back in for psychology to do the job that we need to be doing. Yes, well, reducing it to 10 sessions as a starter was uh, a travesty. But uh, we're extremely lucky, actually, I should mention, 
that's uh, during the pandemic, we, we've done a few collaborations with a local uh, charity down here called It's Okay Not To Be Okay. I'm not sure if you've heard of them, yes. but uh, three three sisters who really created this amazing charity that has does amazing things grassroots around Melbourne and Australia after they lost their brother's suicide, I think, five, six years ago. Long story short, we were very lucky because of the pandemic, they had funds they couldn't utilise and they donated some funds to us to utilise as subsidised counselling sessions. And just recently we finished our third round of that and another charity spoke to Bloke who are up your way in Sydney, I believe, have come on board or maybe they're in Brisbane, I can't recall, Um, but they're up there somewhere north of us and uh, they've come on board to replicate the same thing. The reason I say that is, We've been extremely lucky that if we do have those guys who have to sacrifice their own services, we can subsidize their sessions to the point where they're out of pocket fees, maybe only ten or twenty dollars. So wonderful. That's been phenomenal to be able to offer it, but also to see the impact that has on these men's lives, not only as the clinician, but sometimes in the waiting room. It's been phenomenal. So shout out, thank you to it's okay not to be okay and spoke to bloke, uh, because such such meaningful work that their donations are having on these men's lives and their families' lives. So critically wonderful. And you've got so many psychologists in your practice that people can always find a good fit with a therapist. How does that happen within the practice? In terms of the client journey? Yeah, the client and the therapist relationship, which we know is the main predictor for successful therapy. How do you fit people with the right therapist? We don't actually have a formal process in that, to be honest. Oh. We, 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 it usually rolls along the way of uh, admin will query, do you, do you have anybody that you've seen on the website that you're interested in seeing? So if they submit an inquiry form, they can nominate. Um, and usually it'll go one of two ways. They'll nominate two or three people yep. uh, because of maybe. <laughs> As a side note, the clinicians with beards are always more popular. And that's been a consistent theme since we opened. So it's a fascinating bit of data. But anyway, um, they'll either like the look of them or like the look of their bio or they'll just say anything. And then admin will sort of liaise with them. Well, you wanted to see Tom or Warren, but they're not available. But, you know, Nick could also be suitable. Uh, So it's a bit of we try to give them some buy-in as opposed to us just telling them. Yeah, and there's the empowerment right up front. So people should look at the bios and read up and and study the face and see if they feel a rapport with the person. Um, and then it's always the first session is a real look see for the client to to really uh, assess the the practitioner and ask them questions and see if it's a good relationship for them. Definitely, and I know one thing I encourage our clinicians to ask, but I always ask or say with new clients to say, "Mate, look, this is what how the first session will roll." Um, but it's your job to answer my questions. Ask me any questions you might have, but your number one job is to figure out, am I the right person for you? Do you think at the end of this session that you can see yourself working with me? And if not, that's okay. Just yeah. let us know and we can talk about that or you can let admin know. If you're not comfortable, say it to me and we can figure it out. Luckily, probably nine times out of 10, we get the we get the rapport or the match right. Yeah, well, you're doing the job for the right reasons. So, of course, that's why you'd get the rapport because you want to help. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. And uh, I think, you know, unfortunately, um, I think there's a lot of good private practices and clinicians out there, but I think we all know that there's also some much bigger ones who are, are not doing it 
necessarily for the right reasons in particular, which is, you know, why a lot of guys end up seeing us as a last last ditch attempt because they haven't uh, they haven't been treated too well in some oh, uh, other places. That's dreadful, and for them to know that there's no shame in picking another clinician within your practice. There's heaps of people that they will get the rapport with and if it's not with someone it'll be with someone else within the practice and that it's important to get that right relationship and because you started organically and grew the business as a a practitioner rather than a company an organization it's got the right culture of being there for the results for the people rather than for making the money nicely said Amanda well (laughs) And and I liked the research you quoted that um, talking therapy, which is psychotherapy or counselling for those who don't know, is actually providing results that 80% of those who, uh, sorry, talking therapy shows that people who receive that therapy are better off than 80% of those who haven't had that therapy. So the research is clear that that counselling works. Yes, yes. And I think you and I both know this. Anybody in our profession knows it. It's just sometimes it's, that's a hard sell, uh, especially to more concrete thinking black and white uh, men uh, who view psychology or counselling as more of you know a soft science or uh, just a, well. Some I've had one guy say it was a pseudoscience, but yes, counselling works. It does work, and there's a reason why. Since we opened our doors, we've always struggled with too much work, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, and look, the the measure measurement of the fact that counselling works is the wonderful depression, anxiety, stress survey that we have to do for Medicare, and I always do that in the first session and then at the sixth session, and it's always showing the proof, the evidence. The counselling's worked because the mental health is so improved, mostly. Yeah. yeah, I think the hard part is convincing clients, not that it works at times, but just how it works. Because mm. as you would know, I'm sure you have this with female clients too. There's a presumption that, well, I come in and get my CBT strategies and I run off. But trying to just get clients to comprehend that it's actually, uh, it's about the reports, about the relationship, the strategies, generally speaking, are the sprinkle on top. And of course, there's there's exceptions to that with hypnotherapy, which I believe you you practice, or EMDR, or maybe more advanced schema techniques, but. Uh, generally, you know, my supervisor, one of them said many years ago, and it always stuck with me, and I repeat this like crazy, but good therapy is providing a different relational experience to what the client has in their life. And if you're not doing that, then you're just giving them strategies they could read out of a textbook. Absolutely. It's that relationship and taking people on a journey that they need to go on, whether it's because they delayed the journey in self-development or they're th- struggling through crises, trials, tribulations, being that mentor, that guide in the process, that healer in the process of the journey that whatever the journey is that the client needs to go on in order to have a better, more successful life and mental health. But it is a journey, isn't it? It is mm-hmm. a journey. If only it was as simple as three sessions. I know, I know. And the journey, as we've just said, can have breaks in it for all kinds of reasons of finances, of resistance, and yet can resume as well. So sometimes the journey is not as straightforward as other journeys. No, definitely not, Lydia. 
So I guess one of the the benefits of the pandemic, if anything, is that it brought mental illness into the public discourse. And as you say, younger people hopefully are reaching out and are needing more help as a lot of people are anyway, but hopefully the stigma of therapy will be much reduced in time. I think so. And that's a question that we get asked a lot. And I'm very confident with the younger generations. 20, 30 years will be a very different landscape, not only for men, but just for therapy and stigma in general. Well, that's a positive. And you provide face-to-face psychological support and counselling to boys and men, specifically tailored for males, and also offer services via telehealth, which is phone and video sessions for men all around the country and the world. And you currently have clinicians in the Bayside and eastern suburbs of Melbourne. And for people to find your business, they can go to blokespsychology.com.au and uh, to find you for events and media interviews and for your podcast, Blokes Psychology Podcast. Yes. Just type in Black Psychology, you'll find us on one of the many platforms. Wonderful. Carl, thank you so much for a wonderful podcast and for the wonderful, amazing, important work you do for boys and men. No, thank you, Amanda. It's been very cool to chat. Excellent. Thank you so much, Carl. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe on Apple, Spotify or wherever you're listening right now. Plus, don't forget you can access all of the resources mentioned in today's podcast via the show notes. Is there a pressing issue or topic you'd like me to discuss? Head to my Instagram at dramandaferguson and send me a DM. I love hearing from my listeners. If anything discussed in this podcast has caused you concern or distress, contact your general practitioner or health provider. To locate a psychologist in your area, call the Australian Psychological Society and locate Find a Psychologist Service on 1800 497 or visit www.findapsychologist.org.au. If you or someone you know is in crisis, Lifeline is available 24-7 on 13 11 14 and Kids Helpline, again 24-7, on 1800 1800 and both are free of charge. To find out more about me, please visit my website, dramandaferguson.com.au. You can find the link in my show notes. The opinions expressed by guests in these podcasts aren't necessarily shared by me.